Um, I do want to speak about this week's Torah portion, Parasha, but I also want to start off talking a bit about what happened in Miron and the tragedy that happened. Uh, and this should definitely be a memory for all those that lost their loved ones. It's been a very sad week for us, uh, the past six days. And for those that are sick still and need a refuash lima, may they have their speedy recovery and be healed very soon. It was a terrible tragedy because you know, young children, fathers, parents, it's really, really terrible to watch all their stories. And each one of these tzaddikim were extremely, extremely righteous. They were in a celebration of Rav Shimon Bayochai and they lost their lives and it's terrible to all those that knew them for them that got lost it's they're in the highest places but for the for us as humans we're left with lots of questions so i do want to share with you some ideas some thoughts maybe things that you're not thinking of but just a a thought so it says in deuteronomy chapter 22 that when someone builds a new house and he has a roof. You have right? to put a railing around it. You have to put a railing around it. Do you know what that's called? In Hebrew? What's that mitzvah called? It's one of the mitzvot in the Torah. Railing. <laughs> no, in Hebrew, in Hebrew. No, 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 I'm thinking out loud. I'm not no, it's not loud. a railing in Hebrew. There's another word. Uh, maybe, actually. Oh, isn't it something about, like, the crown? Something? So it's called a ma'akeh. In Hebrew, it's called a ma'akeh. And uh, it doesn't have to only be on a rooftop. The Torah talks about a case where there's a rooftop. But it could also be if you have a, a ditch which is falling down 10 amot or 10 tfachim deep. I'm not sure. I don't remember, actually. I think it's 10 tfachim even, which is just like what, uh, one and a half meters high. That's already enough for a child to fall and get seriously hurt. So in such a case, you are required to put a fence around it so that someone won't hurt themselves if they fall. Uh, someone won't fall. So the Torah, when it says the mitzvah of ma'akeh, it's very interesting. It says, Ki yipol hanofel mimenu. If you don't put a fence around it, there will be blood in your home. And Yipol Hanofel Mimenu, the person that was already meant to fall will fall because of you. What does it mean he's already meant to fall? So here's Rashi, very interesting. Because the person died, he fell and died. And who's in charge? The person that has the roof. Why didn't you put a fence around it? What does Rashi say? It was already dictated that this person's meant to fall because God runs the world and everything that happens. Is part of his plan. So this person that was meant to fall was meant to fall. But nevertheless, you still have a problem. Why did he die because of you? And then Rashi finally falls, finalizes and says, We have a rule that good things are done by people that are meritorious and bad things are done by people that are already bad they already are 
meant to have bad things, meaning they are bad people, they're chayav, they, they've done things that are wrong. So that's how the world works. Good people get the mission to do more good, and bad people get the mission to do more bad. And it's very interesting, because the person that has that roof, and he doesn't put a fence around it, he could say, it's not my problem. If that person fell from my roof, it's because God wanted him to, roof, to fall. So you can't claim that it's my fault. What does the Torah say? It's true he was meant to fall, but why was it through you? And because of that, you are accountable. And I think it's very much similar here. There's 45, unfortunately terrible, 45 people that lost their lives innocently. And they came to Rajbi, Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, to celebrate one of the very holy night and a holy, holy rabbi with hundreds of people. And what was their interest is to just be there. But they, they got hurt. And naturally, it's our, it's our way to blame. So we'll say, okay, you know, who's, who made this happen? How could this have happened? And we start blaming. Oh, maybe it's this person. Maybe it's that person. Why did they do it? But the truth is, they were meant, it was meant to be. It was all a plan. But at the same time, even though it was a plan, there was a problem here that it wasn't done in a way which was secure. There was 20, how can you fit so many people? It wasn't organized well. To put 20,000 people able to go through a small path like that. <clears throat> so there definitely is a fault here as well at the same time. And the person, whoever it is that's organizing, has been at fault. There's no question about it. That, pl that place, whoever organized it, did not organize it in a safe manner. Whoever was involved and whoever should be involved. But there, it wasn't safe. So you can't fully blame God because there was a human fault here. But at the same time, for many, many years, I was there 13 years ago in Miron, and it was exactly the same, just as dangerous as it is today. There was no difference. And for years on end, hundreds of thousands of people go to the same place and nothing happened. So it was a miracle that nothing happened till now. Who was that God? Why specifically these 45 people? Because God, what, it was a plan. There's a plan. They, they are very, who knows what the plan could be? Maybe there was a, a much worse decree that was meant to happen. And these people saved us from a much worse decree. We don't know what happens in the world to come. Maybe they were a reincarnation. Each person has a bigger story. They are there to send a special message that we can't understand until we leave this world. When we leave this world, we'll understand fully why everything happens. But whilst we're in this world, we can't understand fully. And for sure, the people that passed away was because it was dictated that way that they should have passed away. There's no question about it. But at the end of the day, we should look at it and say it's not fully God's fault. Don't blame God in your emunah. Don't blame God in your faith saying that it's... At the end of the day, someone who organized it should have done it in a way which was more safe and um, an environment which could host that many people. I'm not looking to blame anyone. I'm not looking to send anyone and convict them with murder or, or take anyone to court. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying is that 
as much as we have to have a muna that everything happened from Hashem and it's all a plan, we also have to know that Yipol and Ofel, there's a certain element of, of achrayut, responsibility that's involved here as well from a human's perspective, from our perspective. It's very similar to the case of the ma'akeh, of the roof. So that's my thought. And I was saying, I wanted to say that because at the end of the day, yes, when something bad happens, we have to always say there's a bigger plan, but we also have to take responsibility. And there is a bigger plan because specifically these people, of all the people, specifically these 45, and they were all very special. And as Jews, our reaction to any disaster like this or anything else has always got to be internalizing and saying to myself, okay, how can, there must be a message here for me. How can I be better? What mitzvah can I take on? When, when this happened, God had to calculate every single human being in the world, whether they needed to hear this kind of news. And, and it's, each person that heard this kind of news is suffering, right? It's terrible to hear such a thing. So the world, the entire world gets to hear about it. That was part of God's plan. And it's all part of a bigger plan that's for the good. We can't understand it. But what we do have to understand is that Shem's trying to send us a message, which is do something, grow spiritually, do another mitzvah. That is how we look at it. How can I internalize like more growth between us, more unity between us? This is the message that we need to come out whenever there's a disaster. It's to say, okay, this happened in my lifetime. What can I do? I could watch the news again and again and see the story again and again. I could do that. I could talk about it. But what could I really do? And the answer is, I have all this energy inside of me. Like, how can this happen? How can this happen? It needs to go somewhere, this energy. And the best place to put the energy is into myself by being active. Getting up and saying, okay, what mitzvah can I do? What good deed can I do? What Torah teaching can I teach? What, right, something that I could do. To, f to help fix that feeling that I have inside of me. The reaction of the world a lot of times is, okay, let's find who's the culprit. Whose fault was it? Right? That's how we react in the world. And that's not how a Jew is meant to react. Right? There's a spiritual message here that I, need to, I have a pain inside of me. I need to fix that pain. And the answer to fixing it is through doing good actions, wake-up calls. Anyway, so that's my understanding of tragedy and what happened in Iran. Are there any thoughts? Any ideas? Okay. So, I want to tell you something very interesting about this week's Torah portion. And it starts off talking about Shemitah. Has anyone heard of Shemitah? Does anyone know what that is? Anyone? Shmita. Is it when you let the earth rest for the seventh year? Yeah. Exactly. On the seventh year, Shmita means, right? Shmita means literally to, set, to let back, let go. So, Shmita is this week's Torah, the beginning of this week's Torah, which is called Behav. It's Behav Bechukotai. There's actually two readings this week. But it starts off called Behar, on the mountain. What happened on the mountain? God told them to keep 
the mitzvah of Shemitah. That's strange. That's the only mitzvah on the mountain. That's why this week's Torah portrait is called On the Mountain. Baha'u, On the Mountain. What mountain? Mount Sinai. Listen to the words. God speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, speak to the Jewish people and tell them, when you come to the land which I'm going to give you, the land needs to rest for God. Which means that you don't just rest for no reason. It's not a vacation. It's a time where everyone would spend a year growing fully. Everyone will go study Torah. Everyone will spend a complete year like, okay, done with my work in the land and my panasa, my livelihood. I need to spend a year of spiritual growth. It was La Hashem for God. What does it say? For six years, you should sow and reap your lands. And on the sixth year, harvest. Because the seventh year is going to be a sabbatical year for the land. A Shabbat, La Hashem, a big Shabbat of one entire year. And in that year, you can't do two things. You can't seed and you can't be tizmar, which means to prune, which is another way of growing vegetation. You can't work on the land. You have to let it go. Okay, that's the mitzvah. What's strange about this? What's very, very strange about this statement? God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, speak to the Jewish people, tell them to keep this mitzvah of Shemitah. What's strange about this statement? God spoke to them on Mount Sinai. Obviously, he spoke on Mount Sinai. All the mitzvot were on Mount Sinai. This is not the beginning where we got the Torah. This is way later on. What does it mean? God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, keep them. Rashi asked this question. Why are you emphasizing Mount Sinai by this mitzvah? Does it say keep your... Honor your father and mother. And this was taught on Mount Sinai. It doesn't say that. Does it say um, keep Shabbat? And this was, by the way, taught on Mount Sinai. It doesn't say that. Does it say by any other mitzvah? Later on, we're going to learn about another mitzvah. Ribit and Onah. Does anyone know what Ribit is? Interest. Tar- charging interest. Charging interest is something that we avoid in Judaism. Why? Because it puts the poor in a pit hole. It takes them in a situation that they're already difficult in. They need to survive. They borrow money. And now you're charging interest. How are they gonna, if they couldn't make the money this week, then not only is it going to be hard for them to pay you back next week, but to pay you back with interest is very difficult. So according to Jewish teachings, it's, we have to avoid interest. There's different situations where it's allowed for instance, banks and so on, you have something called heter iska. In terms of business, then it's okay. okay so if it's, if it's for business, then it's fine. We're not talking about in terms of business. We're talking in terms of just borrowing money so that a person could survive. If let's say I say to somebody, hey, can I borrow money so I can build a house? Right? So that you're allowed to do. With interest as well, because that's for business. The house is going to go up in value, and eventually there's going to be an interest in you, right? It's a business. So that's different. We're talking only about borrowing money for surviving, for living, right? So someone who borrows money has to, it's called rebeat in Hebrew, and he has to, uh, it's not simple to be done according to Jewish law. Can't 
charge interest for basic needs that someone needs to borrow, and you charge interest because you're putting that person in a deep, deep uh, pit that he won't be able to get out of. So, according to Jewish teaching, we have rebeat. But it doesn't say there that that was taught on Mount Sinai. There's many mitzvot. It's not going to remind me, hey, I got this mitzvah was on Mount Sinai. I got this mitzvah was on Mount Sinai. It doesn't do that. Specifically by Shemitah, it says it, it was on Mount Sinai. Why? What was so special about Mount Sinai to do with Shemitah specifically? This is Rashi's question. All the mitzvot were taught on Sinai. So what does Rashi answer? A simple understanding is that Shemitah is something, the laws of sabbatical year, if you read it in the Torah, it gives you all the details. There's a lot of mitzvot in the Torah which don't give you all the details. And you have to rely on oral law to explain it to you. For instance, tefillin. We wrap the Torah, Hashem's name on our arm and on our head. When we wake up in the morning, we put on tefillin. There, it doesn't tell me details. You should tie it on your arm, between your eyes. What color? What should be exactly inside of it? Which verses? Right? All the details of the tefillin is not, is not written. All the details of the Torah is not written. It's, in general... Just a one statement, but not all the details. With Shemitah specifically, you get all the details as well. That's what Rashi says. But there is a deeper idea. Not deeper, but another idea. Shemitah is unique. You know why? Because Shemitah is one of the greatest proofs that the Torah was given by God and not by a human being. How could anybody have written such a book? Some people say, maybe Moses wrote it. Who in the right mind would have written a, a book, a guidance of living, and would have said that keep Shemitah, keep this year where you go completely sabbatical. You have to understand that back then, even 200 years ago, everyone was farming. Farming was the gr- biggest industry. So, everyone's farming. If you don't farm one year, you're done. There's nothing to eat. But yet, the person that wrote, obviously it's God, right? Whoever wrote this book, the Torah, has wrote in it something which is outstanding. The whole entire society, a whole country, stop your business. I mean, that, that was the source of living for the entire world. Don't stop for one entire year. Don't work. Go on COVID for a year. Quarantine for a year. That doesn't make sense. But it's not only that. Listen to the words of the Torah. It continues. Hashem says, continue this. Keep my laws. Keep my judgments. And then I promise you, you'll be blessed in the land. You'll live in the land secured. The land will always give its fruits. You will be satiated. You will be living there safely. And if you say, how are we going to survive? Right? Because this is, the, God, the, the writer of this book knew the problem. 
And if you'll say, hey, well, what are we going to do on the seventh year? How will we eat? This is our livelihood. You have to understand, the world lived on farming. There was no fridges, no freezers, no cars, no trains, no traveling. Everyone lived by farming. If you had a farm, you ate. If you didn't, you can't eat. Right? You had to work in a farm. Everyone was farming. So here you have Hashem even points out, if you say, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? How can we not seed? How can we not gather our crops? What will we eat? What does God say? On the sixth year, I will, this is by the way in the Torah, this week's portion. In the sixth year, I will command my blessing to you and the land will produce produce for three years. Why three years? For the sixth year that you need to live in because it's the sixth year. It will give you produce for the seventh year because the seventh year is sabbatical year and the land's not being used. And it will give you produce for the eighth year until you could start harvesting again. That takes time. So until you can start harvesting again, three years, you need, you need enough food to eat for three years. If you cut down work for one year, you actually need food for three years. Right? That's why when, when we talk about sh- shutting down an economy because of COVID, it doesn't just affect the time that the economy is closed. Because all during that time, it's produced ahead, for ahead of time. Okay, everything's being produced right now for ahead of time. So when, when COVID happens and there's one year of lockdown, basically in the entire economy of the world, that has a huge impact on many years ahead, not just that year itself. It's a thought. And that's what the Torah says. Don't worry. I'm going to command you to keep the seventh year, the sabbatical year. But I'll give you three times the amount on the sixth year. Once for the sixth, one for the seventh, and once for the eighth. Now that's strange. How can, how can anybody who's human make such a promise? I write a, Torah, I write a book, keep the seventh year, sabbatical year. How can I make such a promise? If, if let's say it was coming from Moses, is it not a risk? To write such a thing? When you go into the land of Israel, they're going to try it out. Everyone needs to survive. They'll come in. They'll start living on the land. And what will happen? They'll start living on the land. And what will happen? Nothing. They'll say, hey, wait a second. You promised that I'm going to have three times the amount in the sixth year. Where's three times the amount? I don't see it. No human being can make such a promise. If I'm going to write a book that influences my people to believe in me, the last thing I'll do is write something that could be verified. Okay? Another strange thing is that when does God say, I'll give you the blessing? Which year? Anyone's been listening to me? Which year will you get the blessing? Three times the amount? Six. On the sixth year, you'll get three times the amount. I don't get it. That's, that's even more strange. Why? Because normally, why is it good to give land a rest? Does anyone know? If, in, in terms of farming, why is it good to give land a rest? Uh, because when you plant crops, they uh, suck the nutrients out of the soil. And so exactly. it needs to, it's called fallowing, I think. Exactly. The, the land needs nutrients. 
And after six years, you've been sucking out all the nutrients of the land. So it makes sense. Like someone could look at this commandment and say, oh, that's very logical. It makes sense. You need a sabbatical year for the land. You can't keep drawing out the nutrients of the land. You've got to give it some time to sleep. But what's very strange is then I would imagine if that's true, then I would imagine, in which it is, it's true that you've got to leave the land to rest. But I would imagine that the blessing or the three times the amount of growth should come on the eighth year, not on the sixth. The sixth year is the end of wearing out the land. Okay, the first year you grow, second year you're growing, third year growing, fourth year, fifth year, sixth year. It should deteriorate. By the time you hit the sixth year, you should have less growth than the fifth year and then the fourth. But yet still there's a commandment. Hashem says, I will command the land and it will give three times the amount. Now, in, in many religions, there are a lot of promises, but they're promises normally that cannot be verified. There's two types of promises that can't be verified. This is how you know, by the way, if people are following just a cult. That's what I've been told. I'm a cult. But this is how you know, right? If you're really following a cult, one of the, re- one of the ways is that there's promises that are made that cannot be verified. They're following some kind of leader who makes certain promises that can't be verified. Who says you're real? So just to make, for example, promises on the world to come. You will have something in the world to come, something beautiful. If that's the only promise, that's a problem. Because how can I know? Yeah, in the world, everyone who dies can only know, but no one's alive can be with the dead. So how can we know? What does it mean that in the world to come, there's something for you? There's, that's a promise. That's By the way, the Torah itself doesn't mention Olam Abba. It subtly does. After each of the forefathers and, the, and our patriarchs, matriarchs pass away, it says, They got gathered back to their people. And what does that mean? They died. There's many, many signs in the Torah that there's a world to come for sure. That this world is only temporary and there's a real world to come. There are many signs in the Torah, but it's never direct. Not once do you see the words olam abba in the Torah. World to come. It's not the way Judaism works. There's many, many answers given of why the Torah doesn't emphasize the world to come. One of the main reasons is because it wants us to live in this world, not be focused on another planet. The focus should be here at the moment. To make this world a mission of making it a better place so that we can receive in the world to come. But not disassociate yourselves from this world. But it's very interesting that in the Torah itself, not one mention of the world to come. Promising something. You could promise the future in a way that's not verified. Either the world to come or in two generations from now. In three generations from now, this and this is going to happen. Well, I'm not going to be there. So then it ain't going to work for me. Right? That's a promise that can't be verified. Six years from now is a promise that can be verified. In six years from now, if I tell you that when you live in a land, I'm going to command the blessings and it will give you three times amount. That's a promise that can be verified. How can somebody make such a promise? How can anyone write that in a book? And the minute we see it's false, we'll all say, okay, fine, we're done. 
There is no God. But that's not what happened. And there's proof even from nowadays. Now, you have to know that Shemitah today, first of all, Shemitah, sabbatical year, only applies to the land of Israel. It's the only place that the mitzvah applies. And it only applies when all the Jewish nation lives in Israel. And that's not the case today. So according to Jewish law, there is no such thing. There's no requirement according to the Torah itself, to the Bible, to the Torah. There's no requirement to keep Shemitah. There is a rabbinical requirement that's already brought from the time of the Talmud. Today we can't make uh, decrees or mitzvot, but back in the times of the Talmud they did. And right, the Torah says that don't turn away from that which the, the, your rabbis have taught you, left or right. Go exactly as you've been taught. Ever since the Talmud finished, we've stopped having the power and the, the ability to understand what's the right thing in terms of making a, a decree for all of Jewish people, a law for all of Jewish We're not on the level. Until the Talmud, they were able to make rabbinical laws, right? There's different types of laws. Some are mishmeret mishmati. The Torah commands us, asu mishmeret mishmati. Make a guarding for my guardings. Make an extra, like when you have a highway, you have an extra road on the side so that, you know, it's safe. If, if your car breaks down, you don't just break down in the middle of the highway. That's dangerous. There's always a side road, um, an off road, which you can go onto. Right? That's called making a guarding for my guardings. In the Torah, it says, Asu mishmati. Make an extra path that would make sure you don't fall. You have to make an extra path for safety that you don't fall. The rabbis, till the times of the Talmud, were able to make decrees or different laws that they instituted, whether it's lighting candles for Shabbat, is a rabbinical law. But you have to understand it's so important. The rabbinical law. We, what bracha did we make, right? Chanukah. Lighting Chanukah lights. Is that a rabbinical law or a, a Torah law? I think rabbinical. that's rabbinical. It's rabbinical. When did Chanukah happen? After the Torah was given after or before? Torah. What? Way after. Years after. Hundreds of years after. So how can it be, this Talmud asked this question, how can it be when I light candles of Chanukah, does anyone remember the blessing? What's the blessing on the candles of Hanukkah? Asher kidishanu ben sotav. Baruch atah Hashem elokeinu melech haolam. Asher kidishanu b'mitzvotav. Who made us holy with his commandments. V'tzivanu. And commanded us. L'hadlik ner. To light the candle of Hanukkah. He commanded yeah, us. I always thought this was interesting. What? I always thought this was interesting. Thanks Isn't for... that strange? You yeah, light candles sorry. of Shabbat. Also, you say, What's going on? We're commanded rabbinical law, washing hands. What do we say? We weren't commanded by God. That's a rabbinical law. What's going on? And the Talmud asked this question. Talmud says it wasn't just, you know, when they decided, let's say Purim, they decided to institute Hanukkah. All these mitzvot. They were on a level that they were able to see that this wasn't just a moment of one time in history. 
This was a moment that gives energy for the future. It's going to change the course of history. They had the power to be able to see that. And the same with the story of Purim. And when they, in the times that they made these decrees, that we should make these mitzvot, they made that decree. Okay, so then we're fulfilling the commandment in the Torah, which says, Don't turn away from that which your teachers have taught you, left or right. Go exactly in the way that you've been taught. So the Talmud, when it was asked, how can it be that we say we were commanded to do it? They say, yes, you were commanded. Because the Torah says, don't turn away, don't deviate from that which they teach, right or left. So that is the commandment that keeps us to do those mitzvot. Are you there? Are you with me? Okay. But even though there's no biblical commandment to keep the seven, to keep the sabbatical year, Till today, there are miracles on the sixth year. That is a crazy thought. Right now, right, is not Shemitah year. I don't know exactly when, when is it? Maybe next year. I think it's next year. Next year is Shemitah. Every single time there's Shemitah, there are stories that come out from people that keep it. I lived in Israel twice, uh, twice during Shemitah. Every single time there's a Shemitah year, the sabbatical year, there's stories all over the news. Everyone's talking different stories of miracles that happen. Let me share with you. There's actually a book that somebody wrote of just a book of stories of miracles that happened for farmers. It's a very hard time for farmers. For farmers, even during our generation, there's a rabbi called Rabbi David Kleiner who wrote a book on all the miracles that happened during Shvit and Shemitah. This is a phenomenal story. Let me tell you one of the stories. There was a story of a big rabbi called Rabbi Yamin Mendelssohn who was the rabbi of Komemiut. It's a very well-known uh, moshav in Israel. And in the year 1952 that's what? 1948? Five years. Four years after. Four years after the, the state of Israel. He was in this moshav, small village and it was after the year of Shemitah. They didn't have, and there was time to sow. They wanted to put, they didn't work in sabbatical year, the religious community. And they, there wasn't any wheat for anyone to plant. They wanted to plant wheat. Uh, there was wheat that was being offered. I'm, I'm translating it from Hebrew. That's why it's taking me time. There was wheat that was offered to them, but there was wheat that was grown on the sabbatical year by people that weren't religious. There were many non-religious people that grew during the sabbatical year uh, wheat. And they were selling kernels, whatever it is, wheat, so that you could put it in the ground and for the eighth year. So they wanted to buy, but they saw that everywhere that, that wheat was for sale, it was from the seventh year. They could not find good wheat that came from the sixth year. They were in the eighth year. They couldn't find wheat that came from the sixth year. But there was one kibbutz, one small kibbutz that was willing to sell them wheat, grains stored from the sixth year. However, they were the worst wheat that you can imagine. It was all the leftovers. They were cracked, broken, and filled with worms and infested so you have here wheat that's disgusting so the head of the 
of the farming area in, in Komamiut or whatever it is, comes to the rabbi and asks him, what should we do? There's no good wheat and all we have is this offer of bad wheat that someone's offering us from the sixth year that's left over. Cracked wheat, filled with worms. What should we do? The rabbi says, if we can't get good wheat, which is kosher according to halacha, we would have to trust in the one that's the source of all life, God. And Hashem is going to help us that we will have blessings coming from the broken, cracked wheats. And everyone, the whole, it, it spread around Israel. Everyone was talking about it, that this community in Komimiyut bought wheat, which was filled with worms, infested, broken, cracked wheat, and they, were, and they spent tons of money on it. And everyone was laughing at them. All the local Yishuvim around Komimiyut, all the different villages around the Komimiyut village, started laughing at them, wasting such money, putting investing, because you have to invest in good wheat if you want the wheat to grow well. Everyone was sure that nothing's going to happen. They won't even get one grain of wheat, not one stalk of wheat. This guy, uh, the farmer, listened to the rabbi and did exactly as he did. He paid the money and bought the wheat and everything. Listen to this. At the time of harvest, Sukkot time, which is the normal time for harvest, uh, they started planting their wheat. Normally, time of harvest. And this happened till the middle of the winter. On that year, there was no rain. So they started planting Sukkot. Normally Sukkot's a time for harvest. They started planting on Sukkot. That year there was no rain. The eighth year, no rain. Until they finished harvesting and a while after, things started to grow. And all the farmers in the local, in the different villages around who were laughing at them, right, that that planted their, in their fields, their, their seeds and their, all, th- all the things that grew got ruined and rotted from the land because it was too hot and it didn't grow. And then eventually it rained. It got, everything got ruined. But in the land of Komimiyut, the entire area, the only place in the entire area, because they harvested late and they planted late, only by them it grew, and they had a lot of produce. Can you imagine? Just one story. There's a story of a big, big rabbi, Rav, that his son tells of. Rabbi Ben Sion Mutsafi is the son of Rav Salaman Mutsafi. Rav Salaman Mutsafi was a big, big rabbi that lived during the times of the Holocaust in Israel. He came from Iraq to Israel, and he knew that. He knew already in his time that the Hitler was going to fall. He saw that Hitler was going to fall. And it was in a time where Hitler tried to get to Israel. You know that Hitler was close to the Mufti uh, in Israel at the time, the head of the Arab uh, nation in Israel at the time. And they would discuss of how they would annihilate the Jewish people in Israel. And... Um, Rav Salaman Mutsafi, a big, big Kabbalistic rabbi that came from Iraq, 
when he heard that Hitler and his troops were coming through, the Nazis were coming through Egypt into Israel, he decided to go amongst him, amongst many other Kabbalistic rabbis. They went to Kever Achel, Rachel's tomb. And there they spent hours, days, praying, shofar, slichot, prayers like you've never, you can't even imagine. Very holy people, fasting. Tremendous prayers at the, the tomb of Rachel. And at a certain point, Rav Salaman Mutsafi, this big, big rabbi, fell asleep. He fell asleep whilst they're all praying, crying. In his crying, he was crying, crying. Please, don't let Hitler come and get the Jews in Israel. Just let us survive. Crying, crying, crying. And he fell asleep. When he woke up, there's a whole story about it. I'm not going to tell you everything he saw in his dream. But he, when he woke up, he told his uh, students, it's, we can go back now. We're done. No need to pray anymore. The decree has been given that he, he's going to fall and that's it. Hitler's going to fall. He's not going to manage to get here. And exactly that's what happened. Hitler turned back. They were at that point fighting with uh, Russia and things started to go on decline. And so this very, very interesting uh, story. They asked him, what, what did you see? What happened? He said, I, I saw that the decree was removed and Hitler's going to be uh, on decline. That was a very, one of the very famous stories that happened in Israel during the Holocaust. So his son, Rabbi Sion Mutafi, who's still alive, uh, bought, he bought a house. Uh, he says that his father bought a house when he moved to Israel, even before the Holocaust. He bought a house in Israel right in Jerusalem. And he, was, he made sure that he didn't get an apartment. He wanted to get a place which has a yard. Somewhere which would allow him to have a small yard. In that yard, why did he want it? Because he wanted to be able to grow and keep all the mitzvot of Israel. Because there's a lot of mitzvot to do with growing produce. So he wanted to grow produce in Israel and see all the mitzvot. Leket, shikha, peah, the stuff that we spoke about. All the mitzvot that are associated with produce. So Shemitah as well, he wanted to see. So he started, he moved into this house and they started growing. He said every single year he would grow wheat and with that wheat he would make his own matzot for Pesach. Every year he made seven kilos of grain. On the sixth year, there was one time on the sixth year, his son says his father came with a bag filled with grains and he comes into the yeshiva, into the pla in the place where everyone's standing. He says, look, Look, this year, weigh it. Every year I get seven grams. This year he had 21 grams. Three times the exact amount. His son says the story straight over. Amazing. Even today, there was a story. Today, in the last, in 2015, I'm not sure if it was 2015 or 2007. But one of those years uh, was Schmitter. And... 2014 or 2007. One of those years was Shemitah. And um, there was a, there's a man who's alive today, Dr. Shivi Drori. He's a doctor, an expert in winery. Studies PhD in winery. He, uh, he owns a Yekev called Yekev Gevaot. Sells wines all over the world now. Very well-known winery. There's a lot of wineries in Israel, by the way. And he's one of them. He owns a winery. 
very successful. He kept Shemitah. He kept the sabbatical year. Not everyone does because since it's not a, uh, a biblical obligation, many don't keep it and they do what we call heta iska. They sell like you do with Passover. You sell your chametz. So every year, every seventh year, they'd sell the land and allow the land to keep working. They, they do a document with someone who's not Jewish, who's not required to keep Shemitah, and they'd make a deal with them on the document, sign, you own the land, and therefore I'm okay. Right? Like, like you do on Passover where you sell the chametz. So on the seventh year, he decided, I'm not doing even hete. Scan no documents, no nothing. I am going to keep Shemitah the real way where I make my entire field, a massive winery, all his vineyard, the, the entire place, free for all, anyone can come in on the seventh year. It was called what we call Hefka, free for all. So on the sixth year, when he harvested, he made the decision he's going to keep Schmidt. On the sixth year, when he harvested, he calculated all the winery, all the grapes, regular amount of grapes, Nothing more than regular. Regular number. The sixth year didn't make any more. Seventh year, he left the land free. Anyone who wanted could come in. And on the eighth year, this is recent. Okay, So you can't say this was a long time ago. This is recent. On the eighth year, he took the wine out from the barrels that he had from the sixth year. After the sixth year, he put all his grapes into wine, put it in barrels, and stored the barrels. On the sixth year, seventh year, stored the barrels. And on the eighth year, he takes out his barrels, and he tastes some of his wine, and he realized that his wine is very special, tastes very good. So he decided to send it to the international wine competition or something where wine, wine is tested internationally, and there's a competition. He won a double gold award. He became a world winner in wine. And his wine was sold for how much more? Three times the regular amount that he sold it. That is a crazy story. Now, I'm not, you could say, okay, he's making up. Check out Dr. Shivi Drory. That's his name. Dr. Shivi, S-H-I-V-I, Drory. You won't be able to, maybe you won't be able to see in Hebrew, in English. But Shivi Drory is his name. And he was the one that was able to uh, testify to the point of keeping Shemitah. He talks about it every year now. And he uh, advocates for Shemitah, for keeping Shemitah. So even if it's not a biblical requirement, people that keep Shemitah see blessings on that year. It's an amazing thing. So maybe now we can understand why this mitzvah specifically was written on Mount Sinai. Where this mitzvah specifically says it was given on Mount Sinai. All the mitzvah were given on Mount Sinai. Yeah, but this one proves that God gave it. This one is a proof that all the others, this is an undisputed idea that this is something phenomenal. And there's many other cases like this, but it's just something which seems so simple. Shemitah, sabbatical year. But when you look deep into it, you realize, whoa, wait a second. You're commanding three times the amount on the sixth year, which makes no sense at all, and it really works. There are stories, books of stories. Of you have to do research to see. You wouldn't believe it. I don't know. To me, it's like, this is, this is it. God, it's God, that's it. There's nothing else. What else can you say? The rabbis say 
that the 70 years that the second, they made a calculation because the Torah also says that if you don't keep Shemitah, yeah, it says, as tiltzeah, it's a chapter that the land will throw us out. If we don't do what's right, the land of Israel is going to throw us out, which happened in the first, first temple and the second temple. We're still out. So the land will throw you out. And that's what happened. We got thrown out for how many years? For the amount of years you didn't keep Shemitah. That's what the Torah says. Your land will be desolate, destroyed. For how long? For the kol for all the years that you didn't keep sabbatical years. And the rabbis in the Talmud make a calculation that during the first temple, there were 70 years where they didn't keep the sabbatical year. How many years of galut, of exile were they in after the first destruction? About 70, but then it doesn't 70 make years. sense. But it Isn't that it interesting? Yeah, Wait, there was a, there was a miscalculation make... by Achashverosh, but based on the calculations of, of Daniel and everyone, it was exactly 70 years. Rabbi. Yes. It, doesn't, it wouldn't make sense then for the second temple, I mean, because, okay, there was time during the second temple, but like the time during the second temple, even if they didn't keep Shemitah for that entire time, way more time than that has passed since. True. True. That's not the only reason. It's not the only reason why we left. It doesn't say that that would be the reason. It says that the land will... That's, maybe I missaid it. The, Talmud, the Torah gives me many reasons why we'll be thrown out of the land of Israel. Right? There was Shvichut uh, Amim, idol worship. That's not enough of a reason to throw us out of the land. But now that we're out, it will work out the, exactly the amount of sabbatical years. So it's not the reason for it. But it would work out that the land will be desolate for exactly the amount of years. And in the first temple, that's what happened. By the way, during the second temple, not all Jews were in the land of Israel. So I don't think there was a biblical requirement then either. Okay? Only during, after the second temple, many stayed in Babel. You know that, right? Not everyone came back. So... That's another discussion. So I, don't, I actually don't know if Shemitah was applied in this, biblically during the Second Temple. There's another case where you see this phenomenal idea. Okay, it says that three times a year, we have, we, when there was a temple, all males are required. The families would go together, but the requirement was upon the male. To go and into all three, three times a year. To go to see God. Where would he go to see God? In the temple. Three times a year. All males of the entire country has to go to the temple. Can you imagine what a big holiday that was? Aliyah Leregel it's called in Hebrew. Aliyah Leregel is during Passover. Sukkot and, and um, uh, Shavuot, everyone would go to the land of Jerusalem and they'd go, it was a tremendous, it was a tremendous celebration. It was the most beautiful thing you can imagine. Can you imagine thousands of people, unity of hundreds, as far as ahead as you could see as people, as far as behind you could see as people. It's, it's an amazing feeling of unity. They, they went 
three times a year. There's a commandment in the Torah. What does the Torah say? This is in Exodus 34. It says it many times that we, would, we were required to go with our families, right? Mainly the male, but the families would go to the temple. So what does it say? No one's going to desire your land because Jews, wasn't only Jews that lived in Israel. Right? There were many, there were other nations too. They were called uh, a Gel Toshav. There were many non-Jews that were living amongst the Jewish people even during the temple, during the times of the temple. So it says that don't be afraid if you leave your land and your home to go to Israel. What's going to happen? Can you imagine? Doctors, lawyers, Hey, maybe they weren't lawyers, but security, police, event organizers, every single organization, everyone, everything's on shutdown. The entire country is going to the temple. You might say, okay, that's not safe. If everyone leaves their land, thieves are going to come and take everything. It wasn't like today where you have a credit card and all your money is stored in a bank, right? Which, by the way, is in some ways scary because in one minute, all your money could be taken away from you. But anyway, that's another discussion. But it, can you imagine if you had any money, you'd store it in your house. So you leave all your belongings in your house. You're not going to take with you all your gold and your silver and your, your money. So they left everything in the house and everyone will go to Jerusalem. Hello, that's not safe. How can everyone do that? So what does God say? No one's going to want your land when you go to Hashem. Three times a year. No one's going to come to your land. That's what it says. No human being will come into your land when you're busy with that. And the Talmud gives me many stories of people that left and they forgot stuff. Listen to this. This is a Talmud from the times of then. One time someone left to Israel. To, they were in Israel, but they left towards uh, to, towards Jerusalem they came back they realized oh my I, they left their, the most important belongings right at the entrance they forgot to put it away what did they find? they found lions were around it lions were seating around it they were hanging out there no robbers are going to come in then there was another story the Talmud gives of somebody who owned a chicken farm what did he do? They came back. Chicken farm, how much can you secure it already? They came, they found wild cats. All lying there opened. Meaning they were dead. They don't know why, but they found wild cats all around dead. And the chickens were fine. One person left his home completely open. Forgot to lock it. And what did he found? He found a snake or something. Another story. Look at his stories. Rabbi Pinchas used to love saying this story. What was the story? You guys are listening, yeah? Rabbi Pinchas, this is a Talmud, Jerusalem Talmud. Talmud Yerushalmi in Peah, 17b. He, had, he, was taught, he used to speak about these two very wealthy brothers that lived in Ashkelon. Ashkelon to, is, to Jerusalem is very far back in those days. And they had neighbors that weren't Jewish friends. The neighbors said, when these guys, when these Jewish people go up to Jerusalem, 
in their festival holiday. Let's go into their home. They're very wealthy. And we'll take whatever we want. God gave them a miracle. Angels coming in and out from their home. When they got back, they sent them a gift. They came, the Jews came back. They sent their neighbors some gifts. Here's a nice souvenir from Jerusalem. So the neighbors said to them, where have you guys been? They said, what do you mean, where have we been? We went to Jerusalem. So the non-Jewish neighbor says, so who did you leave in? Who did you leave in your house? Because your house was busy like anything. There were lights on, people coming in and out. What's going on? Who was in your house? They said to them, we didn't leave anyone. No one. We didn't leave anyone. What did they say? Amru, immediately they stood up and they said, blessed is the God of the Jewish people that never leaves and never leaves them alone. He's always watching over. Blessed is the God of the Jewish people. How can you make such a, such a promise? I, I promise you, you're going to leave your land. Go to Jerusalem three times a year. And not one time, if you do that, your land will be damaged. It's mind-blowing. So these are the messages here. This is so important. Why? Because a lot of times you think, okay, if I do good, who says it's better for me? Why should I do good? There's so much challenges in this world. Life is so not easy. It's, you know, doing good is, you know, doing mitzvot and doing good is it's, it's, it's taxing. It's a lot on me. It's too much for me. I can't handle it, right? These are the words that people say. So, one of the things that we need to remember is that good always has a higher power, has an upper hand. Good is never the weaker side, right? You, like in the movie, the good guy always wins. Good will always win. That's a Jewish understanding and a Jewish belief. It may seem during a certain period that it's not like that, that falsehood and, and trickery is what's going to win somebody, something. But the truth is, Truth is what wins something. And that's something that we believe truly. Hashem made this world where there's, there's negative influences, there's positive influences, like with Moses. Remember the story with, uh, with, with when he came into Egypt? He said, let the people go. And he said, no. Pharaoh said, no. So Moses says, okay, if you don't let them go, I'm going to turn this stick into a snake. Prove to you I have the power to do miracles. So he threw his stick on the floor and it turned into a snake. What did Pharaoh say? Oh, bring me, I could do that too. He brings his wizards. They throw their stick on the floor and it also turns into a snake. What's the idea? They use the negative energy. Moses was using good energy. This is an example. right? The story is real, but I'm just giving you a good example. There you see clearly what happened at the end. The the stick at the end swallowed up their sticks, even though it was a stick. That they couldn't do. They tried to do that. They couldn't do it. Only if it was a snake could they manage to do something. But as a stick to swallow up their sticks, they couldn't do that. So what's the message of that story with Moses and the stick? The message is good will always persevere. Good will always win over the weakness. Good will always win over the bad. Bad is temporary. It's not long-lasting. Good will overcome it. And 
That's something that we always need to remember. Anyway, so this is the general idea. Somebody who sticks to the world of good is going to have good in this world and in the world to come. Not only in this world. It might be challenging at the beginning, but it's something that will last. Right? If you have two machines in front of you, one is fake and one is real. One's worth 50 bucks and one's worth 200 bucks. One's a cheap, let's say, two cameras. They both seem to do the same. Same megapixels, same... One's cheap, you paid 100 bucks for it, the other you paid 1,000. You're like, wait, wait a second, they're the same machine, same specifications, same everything. Why is one machine so much worse than the other? Why is it so much more expensive than the other? And what's the answer? You buy both, you go and check it out. What do you see? Ah, it works. Even the cheap machine works. But you know what? It doesn't feel so good. It looks good. It looks pretty much the same. What's the greatest proof that it's not the same? What's the greatest proof that something is really of value? Huh? What's the greatest proof where you have something which was cheap and something which was expensive? And sometimes you, expensive doesn't mean it's better. It just means that you were in an expensive store, right? But a lot of times... When you feel that something's cheap, it looks the same. A camera, one's cheap and one's a good company, good camera. What makes, what's the proof that one's better over the other? What's the biggest proof? Anyone know? The time. The time. How long it lasts. How long is the good one going to last for? That's what's going to win. What's long term? What's short term? Right? Good is something that's going to be long-term. It doesn't fail because the spiritual world isn't bound by time. So the more spiritual you're connected to something, the more timeless it is. That's also an idea. Okay? So good is something which is always stronger than bad, even though right, when, when you have a desire to do something wrong, and you say, wow, this desire is so strong. It's possible to overcome. No, a person must know that if the desire to do bad is so good, that that means look how good good is. It shows you how powerful good is. Because the world has to be we have a rule that they, there's two opposites. Otherwise, there will be no, no uh, attraction to either side. If you have good and bad, which, and bad is stronger, or, or good is much, much stronger, and bad is much, much weaker, then you wouldn't really have a battle. You have to have some kind of battle. If the fake product, the fake camera is too cheap, no one's going to even bother. It has to have some attraction to it. Right? So if we feel that our evil inclination doing wrong is so hard, can you imagine how good, how much, how powerful good is? Because it's on the other side. We forget how powerful good is. Someone once told me, you know, it's not, it's not a fair world. God made an unfair world. Look how how much evil there is. Look how much bad there is in this world. Look how difficult this world is. It's like, it's, this world's not a good world. I, I don't think God made a good world. I said to him, yeah, it's true. You see how bad bad is. But you don't, do you realize how good good is? Do you realize the power of the good? The reason why you're saying, because 
bad is so bad in your eyes. Think about how good good must be. The power of one mitzvah, we don't realize the power of it. And it is. You see people that did good in the world, their influence is so much beyond themselves. It goes way beyond themselves. Because bad doesn't have as much of an influence as good. Good is, is something which can, as much as bad is so strong, you have to recognize that good is so much more strong when we do a good thing. Anyway, so my message is to understand and to really enjoy uh, the idea that we have something which is not just a blind belief where God says do this and do that, but it's something which can be tested. Where we see clearly the words of God. You have to also, there's another point here. Shemitah, right, is not so important to us. Sabbatical, it doesn't really affect us. So we're like, okay, you know what? It's good, it's good, yeah. It makes sense that land needs to rest for a year. Yeah, it's true. It's easy for me to say because I'm not being tested. I don't have land. But if I was being tested when my only source of income was the land, that is a hard thing to do. It's very, very hard when you're actually engrossed in the challenge itself of having to turn away from land just because God told you. Very hard. But God promises, I command my blessing. And it's like that in many other areas as well. It may seem like a difficult thing, but if God commands it, it's for sure the best for us in this world and in the world to come. Thank you all for listening, and I hope uh, you learn from Shemitah to everything else as well. You see the beauty of the Torah and Judaism in all areas. All right. Well, thank you for joining and listening.